You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Mark 11 is where we are, so if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, that would really serve you to have one open and on your lap. So if you, if you don't have one with you today, underneath your seat, you should be able to find one, Mark 11. While you're turning there, uh, let's just take a moment to officially recognize that today is Mother's Day. And we want to do a good job of honoring and heaping honor on the moms uh, of the Stonegate family. And so in light of that, I, I want to just take a look at all the moms in the room. And I want to, to make sure you know today that the sort of ministry that God has entrusted to you as a mom is is I think one of the most vital and important ministries that God entrusts to any human being. That, you know, I think it would be fair to say that for all the sons and daughters in the room, which is basically all of us, right, that we're saying that our moms have had a massively important influence upon us. And so in light of that, I would love to have every mom um, that can, if you wouldn't mind standing where you are, that'd be you moms, yeah, Standing where you are. Yeah, and we just want to take a second to, to thank you. Thank you guys very much. Now, I also want to take a second to, to thank my mom. Uh, by, in just the providence of God, my mom and dad and my grandma are here this morning. And, uh, and I want to take a second to, uh, to just heap a little honor on my own mom. Um, in so many ways, she has been such an extraordinary grace um, from God to me. And my, my mom and dad go to the same church that I grew up in back home. And my pastor this week called me and said that he was going to honor my mom this week for doing a little particular thing in a ministry at our church. So he asked me if I would feel comfortable reading what he was going to read to their church family back home my, where I grew up uh, to my mom. And so I told him I would love to do that. And so uh, this is from Bill. <clears throat> He said, each year we recognize mothers who have touched the lives of others through the ministries that they have served as, or served as a part of Crossway Church, and Judy Hobbs is one of those mothers. Judy Hobbs is one of a kind. If I want something done and done with excellence, then I call upon Judy. She's not turned me down a single time, whether it's making decorating decisions on our new building or taking on the task of leading another class. She's coordinated our women's ministry for many years. She's helped to, re, uh, to build the largest cross, uh, crosswalk class in our church, kind of would be equivalent to our home groups. She hosts interns in her home. She cooks for groups to, to come to her home. She's currently working on building another crosswalk class of young adults. And she uh, also helps lead their 55-plus ministry. She seeks out guests who attend our church to include them and to make them feel welcome. She's a wonderful support for her husband and his ministries. She gets things done for the glory of God in his church, and we'd be hard-pressed to replace her. She not only serves her church and her Lord, but she serves her children, grandchildren, and her husband. Her family praises her. Thank you, Judy, for who you are and what you do in the kingdom of God. Your friend, Pastor Bill. Yeah. <clears throat> And there's no, there's no good way to do this, but we're, we're going for it. And, so, and, and also in the providence of God, my 97-year-old grandmother has got to come down. And so, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was really special. Even this morning, she's like, I didn't know if I'd ever get to come and see Stonegate again. And she's got such great affection for our church. Every time I call her, um, one of the first things that she'll ask is, how's Stonegate going, you know? Um, praise for us like crazy. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to give this to both of y'all, and along with this letter to you, you. and letter to you. And mom, I would want to tell you that um, in so many ways, you've imaged and reflected um, just the heart of God. Um, I think I could talk about like your compassion, your kindness and generosity and hospitality, like all those different ways. And so um, I want to tell you that I love you and I appreciate you very much. You're very welcome. <clears throat> Now we're to Mark 11. Okay. <laughs> Mark 11. <clears throat> so let me, let me set up Mark 11 uh, by just reframing that the last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark 
deal with the, the last seven days of Jesus's life. So just think about that. Of the 16 chapters, six deal with this seven-day period, a very important um, seven days. And uh, so Mark 11 starts with Sunday. And this is the, the last Sunday of Jesus's life where he rides into Jerusalem and the, the crowds are a little bit confused about who Jesus is, but they are going wild for Jesus. So it's that, that sort of a day, that's Sunday. And then you get to Monday. So Sunday night, Jesus goes back to Bethany, kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Monday morning, he comes back into Jerusalem. And the first thing he does on Monday morning, this is the passage we were in last week. He curses this fig tree, makes his way into Jerusalem and straight to the temple where he has this temple clearing sort of a moment where like his, his just judgment on all the religious activity among the people of Israel and the religious leaders. They've got all of this religious activity. If you're here last week, we talked about it in terms of these religious leaves. They've got all of this religious activity going on, but there's no fruit the, the, the fruit of like this deep and genuine love of God and worship of Jesus, it's strangely absent. And so this temple clearing moment is Jesus showing his judgment and condemnation of that sort of a thing. Religious activity without the substance and the heart of a deep, genuine love for Jesus. And now that turmoil, kind of that, that moment in the, in the temple, this temple, you know, table turning moment, it really, you know, created the tension for the week. From that point forward, Jesus began to have these serious spats with the, with the religious leaders that ended in them falsely accusing Jesus in just a few short days, them, them crucifying him. So that's where this is going. Now, that's Monday, temple, all that stuff happening, clearing out the temple. He goes back to Bethany on Monday night, and then Tuesday morning, he comes back into to Jerusalem head straight back to the very same temple that he just cleared the previous day. And that's where you pick it up in verse 27 of Mark 11. In verse 27, the scene is created where the religious leaders come up to Jesus in the temple and they ask him a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Where does your authority come from? How do you think you can do these things? So these things are things like clearing out the temple. These things are like, get this huge crowd becoming this popular. These things, how do you, where, where does that authority to do those things come from? Now, they were not asking in a, we would love to know and are seeking to understand sort of a way. They are asking in an obstinate, stiff-necked, rebellious, and unresponsive, this man has to die sort of a way. And it's in response to their unresponsiveness. And it's in response to these religious leaders, their rebellion against him, that you get chapter 12, verse 1. So it's in light of th that episode of them questioning his authority in a we want to kill you sort of a way, not a we want to know you sort of a way, that he says, Mark 12, verse 1. It says this, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now, parables are big, like they're, they're, they take massively important truths. Truths like God, grace, gospel, sin, these sort of massive biblical themes. It takes those sort of big themes and puts them into story form. That's what a parable does. Now, this particular parable fits into the category of parables that, you, uh, that are kind of like this category called judgment parables. Fitting for Mother's Day, right? Laura looked at me this week and were like, what are you preaching this week? A judgment parable? It's just the text that we're in, all right? That's all I'm saying. So we've got this judgment parable. And here we go in verse 1. It goes on. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, surely they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. Okay, so let, just to kind of get our bearings in the story, let me try to, try to give the, the, the five major characters and how they're represented in the story. So you need to see these characters and how they play out. So character number one is the owner, the owner of the vineyard. The owner in this story represents God the Father. Owner, God the Father. The second character is the vineyard. The vineyard represents Israel, the people of God. That's the vineyard. Vineyard is Israel. The third is the tenants. The tenants would represent the religious leaders in Israel. The fourth are the servants, these people that God keeps sending to the vineyard, sending to the tenants. The servants would be represented by the prophets, these prophets throughout the Old Testament that God would send to the people of Israel. And then lastly, you've got the son, and the son equals Jesus, God's son, God the son, right? You see the picture? So the owner is God the father, the vineyard is Israel, the tenants are the religious leaders, the servants are the prophets of God, and the son is Jesus, the son of God. This is This is kind of the the framework of the story. Now, in light of that, I want to ask this question. What does this story teach us about God? What do we learn in this parable about the nature of God, how God works? What do we learn about God? And I'm going to give you four things that we learn about God here. Four things. Four things that this parable teaches us about God. Here's the first one. The first thing we learn here in this parable is God's hope for his people. God's hope for his people. So look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this. A man. Now, remember, the man, the owner of this vineyard, that's God. So a man, represented as God. A man planted a vineyard. Now, just a quick note on that word vineyard. That's, that's talking about the people of God. So this parable, the vineyard, that's, that's Israel, the people of God. Now, the, the, vi- the vine or the vineyard, kind of the cluster of grapes, that sort of an imagery is pulling straight from the Old Testament passages like Isaiah chapter 5 that talks about the people of Israel in terms of a vineyard, in terms of, of a cluster of grapes. That's sort of an imagery. So this is like standard Old Testament fare for, for referring to the people of God. It would be akin to like as an American, you see a bald eagle, you might think, yeah, that's, that's our symbol. Or if you're a Canadian, you see a maple leaf, you'd think, yeah, that's, that's my symbol. If you were part of the people of God, the Jewish people, when you see a cluster of grapes, you would be thinking, yeah, that's, that's our symbol. That's kind of our symbol of our national identity. So this is who he's talking about here. God's the owner, the vineyard, people of Israel. And this is what it says that God the owner does. So he planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So let me try to point out all that God is up to in verse 1. And I, I marked down five things that you see God doing, God the owner doing in this first verse. So here are the things you see God doing. Number one, he planted the vineyard. He preps the soil. He plants the seeds. He does it all. The tenants aren't doing that. God, the owner, is doing that. So he planted the vineyard. He built a wall around the vineyard, this fence to keep intruders out, to keep animals out, to keep anyone that might harm the vineyard out of the vineyard. He, he, he built a wall. Thirdly, he dug a pit for the wine press. He gave the vineyard everything it would need to be faithful and fruitful. He gave it all the resources it would need. Fourthly, he built a tower so that every part of the the vineyard could be seen and looked upon and cared for and protected. He built a tower. Now, in so many ways, this is representative of God calling a people to himself, creating the vineyard in the Old Testament of the people of God. So this is how it plays out in the Old Testament. In uh, Genesis chapter 12, God looks at a man named Abraham and he calls Abraham out of his country and he says, come and follow me, Abraham. And then in Genesis 12, he makes this promise to Abraham. Hey, I know that you're childless right now, but Abraham, I am gonna make a great nation out of you. Abraham, I love you. I have set my affection on you. I have called you and chosen you, Abraham, and I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make this great nation. And your descendants are going to be so numerous that there's gonna be more of them than there are stars in the sky, Abraham. That's what I'm gonna do for you. And just like I love you and have set my affection on you and have called you my own, Abraham, that's how I'm going to feel about your descendants. They're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. 
And then you, as the story comes, comes forward, the, the people of God find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God sends this man Moses to rescue and redeem them out of Egypt. He leads them into the wilderness then where God gives them manna, gives them everything they need to be protected and provided for in the wilderness. Then God takes Joshua, and through Joshua, God leads his people into the promised land. It's such an interesting story, because so often you see God going before his people in the promised land, this land filled with grapes and figs and all of this beautiful stuff, and he goes before them, and God is literally clearing out the land before them. God is planting his vineyard. He's he's creating these people. And he's doing all of that. Think about the great lengths and the great pains that God goes to to create this vineyard in this passage. And God does all of that for the people of Israel. Does all of those things. He builds the wall. He builds the tower. He makes the wine press. He preps the soil. He plants the seed. He does all of that, creating the people of Israel, his people. Why? Why does he go to all of those great pains? Here's the answer. And this is the hope that he has here. He does all of that because he actually wants them to be fruitful. Going back to last week, he doesn't just want them to have a lot of religious leaves. He actually wants the people of Israel to experience and to produce the fruit of a deep, genuine love of God and a worship of Jesus. That's what God's after. This is his hope for his people that they would be a fruitful people, that the vineyard would grow and produce great grapes, that these grapes have this deep, genuine affection and love and worship of God Almighty. Okay, that's what he's hoping for. And then the fifth thing God does in verse one is he turns the the vineyard over to the tenants. He says, okay, now I've prepped this. I've gotten all this ready. Now I'm gonna invite you in, tenants, to care for and to protect this land with me, to make sure you're working toward this land's fruitfulness, the vineyard's fruitfulness. And he's talking to the religious leaders. He's saying, in so many ways, I have invited you in now to care for my people, to protect my people, to lead them to fruitfulness, this, this fruit of a deep, genuine, and abiding love of God. Worship of Jesus. So this is what's happened. He's pulling from really common day, like common uh, imagery in New Testament world, where you would have a landowner who would do all the prep, and then he would invite a tenant in. They would share the proceeds and share the profits, share the fruit. It would be a really normal kind of common imagery in the day. And he's saying, "This is what I've done for you, religious leaders." So this is God's hope. This is what God is doing. He's doing all of that so that the people of Israel, God's people, will be fruitful. Deep, genuine love of Jesus, worship of Jesus. Okay, so that's what we see first, the the hope God has for his people. The second thing we see is God's kindness toward his people, God's kindness toward them. So watch how the story goes. Verse two, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them or to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, before we go on, we just need to recognize this. That would be a reasonable thing to do, wouldn't it? You're the owner of the land. Everything in the vineyard is yours. Every grape, every, every you know, vine, the wine press, everything that, that is the vineyard is yours. You're the owner of it all. So it's very normal and reasonable for the owner to come back and say, hey, I, I'm ready to inspect the fruit. How are we doing? I'm ready to take some of the fruit that would be mine. So that would be a very normal thing. But then watch how the tenants respond. God is the rightful owner of of this thing. He's got the authority to come back and get the fruit he wants. But then watch how they respond in verse 3. And they took this servant that the owner sent and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This servant left with nothing but a black eye. That's all he left with. He left empty-handed. Now, it's, it's... It's the owner's vineyard. The owner sends his servant, and that servant got whooped in the owner's own vineyard. And it's begging this question, if you're the owner, put yourself in the shoes of the owner, what are you going to do to the tenants? What's going to be your response to the tenants? It's your land, it's your vineyard, it's all of your stuff, and they just whipped your servant that you sent back to get some of it. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If that's my vineyard, I'm the owner, I'm calling Valentine. Valentine, if you don't know Valentine, he's got arms that are literally the size of my waist. I'm calling Valentine, and I'm saying, Valentine, it's time to unleash those arms on some tenants. That's what needs to happen right now. But I want you to watch God the Father's response, the owner's response. They're revolting. They are in utter rebellion against God the owner. And look at his response in verse 4. Again, he sent to them 
another servant. And it wasn't Valentine. Another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So this one didn't just get a black eye. This one got shamed. Now, let me just try to make sense of that. Um, It would be the equivalent of a guy getting open hand slapped by another guy. You know what I'm talking about? See, like if two guys are fighting each other and one of them punches the other one in the nose and then that other one punches that first one in the nose, when the dust settles and the dust clears, they can all be friends at the end of the day. That's a respectable way of doing something, you know? But when, when a guy, when a man open hand slaps another man, someone's got to die. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so someone's got to die in that moment. And that's what's happening here. And in so many ways, this servant didn't just get punched. He got open hand slapped. He got shamed in that moment. Now ask yourself the question, what are you going to do if you're the owner? Your servant didn't just get a black eye that got shamed, open hand slapped in your vineyard when he's going back to get your fruit. How are you going to respond to that? Watch how God the Father responds. Verse 5. And he sent another. Another one. A third one. He sent another and him they killed. Now I'm reading that in verse 5 and I'm thinking, are you crazy? I'm not sending anything but an army at this point. That's what I'm sending. He sent another one. And this, verse 5 continues. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Over and over and over again, the owner of the vineyard, God the Father, keeps sending servants, these prophets, over and over and over again to the tenants, the ruthless and rebellious tenants. And over and over and over again, these tenants and the people of the vineyard keep killing them. And listen, that is the story of the Old Testament. That is it. That over and over again, that this people that God created, the people of Israel, over and over and over again, God would send them prophets, his servants. And they would be calling the people of God to repentance, calling them out of their sin and idolatry, calling them to faith in God, to a worship of Jesus, calling them to all of that, but they refused to listen. They were rebellious. They were in revolt against God, the owner. And they would beat these prophets They would shame those prophets. They would kill those prophets. Let me just give you some examples of this. I just wrote a few down. How about Elijah? You remember him in the Old Testament? That man got chased into a wilderness and chased around like a dog. Zechariah was stoned to death. How about Isaiah? He's a fairly well-known Old Testament prophet. You know, there's this wonderful scene. We talked about it last week in Isaiah 6 where he he sees a glimpse of God in the temple. And that scene ends in... um, in Isaiah 6, verse 8, with God saying, after, after Isaiah has seen this vision of God, God saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for me? And Isaiah responds with, with this verse and this statement that makes its way onto the, you know, to the back of a lot of t-shirts. Here am I, send me. This beautiful response. He's going to be this prophet of God. But you know what doesn't make it onto many t-shirts? The next verse. When God clarifies the sort of response that people are going to have to him. Okay, I'm sending you. So you're going, Isaiah, but here's how the people are going to respond to you. You're going to speak, Isaiah, and no one's going to listen. You're going to preach, no one's going to pay attention. And as tradition has it, these these exact people that God sent Isaiah to preach to ended up sawing him in two. Or how about our man Jeremiah? He's another fairly well-known Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah, that brother had a rough life. He wrote two books in the Bible. One is the book of Jeremiah, and one is Lamentations. You know if you wrote the book of Lamentations, your life was pretty hard, don't you? You know it did not go well for you, and it didn't. God called Jeremiah when he was in his mother's womb, sent him as a prophet to Israel, pleading with the people of God to return, you know, come out of your idolatry, come out of your sin, return to God. And in response to all of his preaching, all of his pleading, they refused. And not just refused him, they reviled him, rejected him. At one point, they imprisoned him. In another point, he finds himself in stocks. Another time, they put him in a pit and leave him for dead. This is Jeremiah. If you want maybe a summary of how the Old Testament prophets were treated, Hebrews 11 does a really good job at this. Hebrews 11, this will be on the screen for you. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 36 through 38. Listen to how it summarizes some of how the, the Old Testament prophets were treated. 
Others suffered mocking and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep, uh, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. These were God's servants, the prophets, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's how God's people, the vineyard, the tenants, that's how they treated God's servants. If you want a New Testament example of this, think about um, uh, John the Baptist. We saw him in the opening chapters of Mark. John the Baptist comes preaching repentance, calling the people out of their idolatry and sin. And in response to that, the people of God imprison him and decapitate him. That's their response. This is how the people of God treated, the vineyard and the tenants treated the servants of God. If you want to think about the entire history of the people of Israel, you might think of it this way. It was full of rebellion, revolting, and just plain old ignoring of God. That's, That's their history is marked with that. Now, the question is, how would you respond to that? Put yourself in the, in the shoes of God. You have sent servant after servant after servant. They get beaten. They get mocked. They get reviled. They get killed. How are you going to respond to that? I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go rent an entire episode or entire season of CSI, and I'm going to learn how to hide some bodies. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm doing. Man, I'm, somebody's dying in this thing. Somebody, somebody is, is getting the wrath in this thing. I love how Martin Luther said it. He was the old reformer of a few centuries ago. He said it this way. If, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's what I would do. I agree with him. But I want you now to watch at, look at verse 6, where the kindness of God culminates. They've just killed all of his prophets I mean, just one after another. He's sending them, and they are reviling and shaming and killing them. And then look at what he does in verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. I mean, you're supposed to kind of get to that point and say, surely not. There's no way he's about to do this. And then you get on to the rest of verse 6. Finally, he sent him to them saying, surely they're going to respect my son. I mean, you get to that point and you're like, there's no way. They have just like beaten all your servants. They've just mocked them, shamed them, killed them. And, and you think they're going to treat your son, but surely you're not going to send your son into the teeth of that. Surely you're not going to do that. And just to connect some dots here, when Jesus uses this term, beloved son, when he's using that, he is using that phrase so that we will all know that that beloved son is him. See, there's two, places, uh, two other places in Mark that use the term beloved son. Uh, one of those is in Mark 1 at the baptism of Jesus, where God looks down from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. And then the other one is in Mark 9. This is the transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain, and they meet with God. And on that mountain, in the hearing of Peter, James, and John, God the Father says it again, this is my beloved son. So the son we're talking about here, that son is Jesus. That's who we're talking about. That's, he's, he's trying to intentionally make sure we're tying that dot together. That, that, that son, you know, the son that these tenants are about to, to kill and to maim and to shame, that son is me, he is saying. That, that is me. This is, this is Jesus. That's who we're talking about. So here's the point. Here's what I want you to see here. Because there's a way of reading this passage and this parable and seeing what is true. This, this parable does highlight the wickedness of the tenants, They are wicked people, but that is not the main point of the parable. That is not the main point. The the main point of the parable is not to highlight the wickedness of the tenants, but the kindness of God to them in their wickedness. That is the main point of the parable. These are people who are slaying his servants, reviling them, shaming them, killing them, and even killing his very own son. And it is highlighting God's gracious response over and over and over how God is meeting their rebellion with such wonderful mercy. It's showing us that, that picture of kindness. And then look at that, how they respond in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
See, the point of this parable is to help you see God knew all of that was going to happen. God knew in the midst of their, you know, in the midst of their rebellious and, you know, rebellion and their revolt, he, he knew exactly, not only were they going to kill his prophets, but they were going to kill his beloved son. And the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God sent him right into the teeth of that on your behalf, on, on the vineyard's behalf, on the tenant's behalf, sent sent him right into the midst of that for them, not just to plead for their repentance, but to actually accomplish their rescue. That's the kindness of God that we see here. But we don't just see the kindness of God in this parable. We also see the severity of of God, the severity, God's severity to the sin of his people. This parable is also showing us a picture of that, not just his kindness, that God actually responds in two ways to the sin of his people. One way is God responds with great kindness, but the other way is God responds in great severity to the sin of his people. And this is, you know, this is the point of the sermon where we take a right turn like down the street called serious, right? But this is, this is where the parable gets very, very serious. This is why it's called a judgment parable. And, and listen, in part, like what we're seeing here is what Paul reminds us of in Romans 11 verse 22. Paul says, you need to note this about God. That God, you need to know both of these two things, his kindness and his severity. You need to see a God that has both of those, not just one of those. See, we've got a lot of people and a lot of preachers who peddle the kindness of God like crazy, as they should, by the way, but to the neglect of his severity. And can I just tell you that if you've got pastors and preachers who won't preach on the severity of God, they are doing you a great disservice. Because the Bible presents to us a God who responds in two ways to our sin. One is in unbelievably great kindness, and one is with unbelievably great severity. So so think about the context here. The context is you've got these rebellious people. God keeps sending servants, keeps sending servants, and it culminates his kindness in the sending of his son. And they respond by slaughtering his very own precious beloved son. And it leads to to verse 9. How will God respond to that? What is God going to do now? It's almost as if the people, you know, the tenants in the vineyard are saying, God's not going to do anything. He's he's, he's not going to do anything. We can get away with whatever we want to do, however we want to do it. God's not going to intervene. Verse 9 is God's response. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What is God going to do in light of their wickedness? In light of their sin slaughtering his own son? What what is God going to do? Answer. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's what God's going to do. That is a picture of the severity of God. Now, in one sense, this text is showing us that the physical and temporal effects of God's judgment on the people of Israel. Physical and temporal. That in AD 70, just a few short years after this, the Roman army comes into Jerusalem and utterly destroys it, destroys and crushes Jerusalem and destroys the temple. The people of God are scattered across the face of the earth. So that's, that's in one sense that they are physically destroyed. But this passage right here, this idea of God coming and destroying the tenants, isn't just talking about a physical and temporal destroying. It's also talking about God's judgment on sin that is so severe that it will also eternally destroy people namely the tenants and the people of the vineyard. Not just physically and temporally, but but spiritually and eternally. He is saying here that if you persist in your rebellion long enough, if you stay in your rebellion, you, you continue in your revolt, you hang in there long enough and you are going to collide with my wrath in ways that you would not believe. That you are on a collision course with my judgment and my just condemnation for sin. You are on the collision course with that. And the Bible says that wrath and God's judgment over sin culminates in what the Bible, and in particular Jesus, calls hell. Now, hell in the Bible is described as a place of darkness, as a place of anguish. Maybe you could summarize it this way. It's described as the absence of God and all the good that comes from God. It's void of all of those things. And Jesus is saying here, if you persist in your sin and your rebellion and your revolting, if you stay in your hard-heartedness, if you continue to reject me, that is your fate. This is where you are headed. You are going to collide with that sort of judgment of God, and that's a good judgment of God. That's like the right judgment of God. You're colliding with that, he is saying. 
That this is the severity of God that we see in this parable. And then lastly, we see God's ultimate triumph in history. God's ultimate triumph in history. This is verse 10 and 11. And, you know, I think in so many ways we need to be reminded of this often. You know, if you were just to, to switch on the news tonight, there is a sense in which it is really easy to believe that maybe sin is winning. I mean, maybe evil is winning. But Jesus is about to remind us that sin never wins. Evil never wins. That sin and evil are always subjects of his sovereignty. And he's reminding us here that in the end, Jesus wins. And in the end, all of those in Jesus, they win. So here it is in verse 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture, Jesus asked? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus ends by quoting Psalms 119. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm pointing forward to the Messiah, pointing forward to Jesus. And he's looking at these religious leaders, and they know he's talking about himself. And he is saying this to the religious leaders. I am the stone that you're rejecting. I'm, re- I, I'm, you're, I'm being rejected and reviled by you right now. You're rejecting me, God's stone. And that rejection is going to culminate in a few days with your false accusations and, and you crucifying me on a cross. That's where this is going. You are rejecting me, but make no mistake about it. Even though you reject me, this stone's going to rise on the third day. And on the third day when I rise, you're going to see that I'm not, no longer going to be the rejected stone. I'm going to be the cornerstone, the foundational stone, the stone that everything else is aligned with and built upon, the foundational centerpiece of the universe. That's where it ends. That's what a resurrected Jesus looks like. No longer the rejected stone, but the capstone, the chief stone, the cornerstone that holds everything together. And there's a sense in which Jesus is looking at the religious leaders and he's saying this. You can persist in your unbelief if you want. You can persist in your rejection of me, but it will be to your eternal demise. Or you can receive me as the cornerstone to your eternal joy. Your choice. The options are before you. Okay, now I'm going to finish by taking the next just couple of minutes and applying this. Uh, I want to just make this like ground level for us today. This is what the story is teaching, these things about God. But let me try to connect this with the grind of your life. So I am acutely aware after being in ministry for a good while now that we, we just have a unique ability. Like when I'm sitting in a sermon, I've got the unique ability to hear these massively like grand biblical truths about God, gospel, grace, you know, judgment, all of these huge biblical ideas. And we can even sit in the crowd and in a sense be applauding them that, yes, that is right. Yes to that. We can do all of that and still not be greatly affected by them. We can applaud all day long, but they just never reach the deep places of our heart. And I think in so many ways, it's because in so many of these scenarios, we fail to put ourselves into the story. We fail to see, and here's what I want you to feel as we finish today. We f- so oftentimes in a story like this, in a moment like this, we fail to see that we are the wicked tenants who deserve God's judgment, but instead have been the recipients of God's great kindness. So often in a moment like this, we fail to see that, that, that we are the wicked tenants who deserve judgment, but rather than getting judgment for God, from God, we get God's extraordinary and great kindness, his grace and his mercy. Let's just take this in three parts. We are the wicked tenants. Do you know that about you? That when you're reading this story, you should not be thinking, wow, I didn't know people could sin like that. You should be thinking, that is me. That that is what my sin does. That is what my sin does to Jesus. That's what my sin does to his servants. This is the picture of my sin toward God, that we are the wicked tenants. When we come out of the womb, we are in revolt against God, rebellious toward God. And listen, the Bible isn't just saying that is the worst of us. The Bible is making it very clear that that is all of us. That we come out of the the, the womb, swords drawn, ready to do battle, having declared war on God. We are indifferent to God, acting as if he won't intervene. He's not going to show up. He's not going to do anything. We're in revolt against God. This is what sin is. 
I, I love how the New City Catechism, we're encouraging all of our families to be on this right now and kind of through the year, taking one a week and kind of running through these with your family. Question 16 of the New City Catechism, questions and answers that deal with big biblical truth, God, gospel, sin, all these sort of things. Here's question 16. It asks the question, what is sin? And listen to the New City Catechism's response to this. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to, to him. It's not being, it's not doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. And the Bible is saying, that's you. You're guilty. You're the wicked tenant who has that sort of sin living inside of you, being expressed in your life. It's this indifference to God, ignoring God, rebelling against God, not being what he has called us to be. That that is a picture of all of us in the Bible. Not just some of us, not just the worst of us, it is all of us. The Bible's clear on that. And in light of us being the, the wicked tenants, we are in great, like we deserve God's judgment. Our wickedness deserves God's wrath. Like the Bible could not be more clear on that. And you know, and this is what is so interesting. I, I know, talk about wrath, hell, judgment, that, that falls really hard on 21st century ears. I know that. And it's just interesting in 15 years of kind of vocational ministry life that anytime the topic turns to, to hell, judgment, these sort of big weighty themes, here's the response that 21st century people always give to that. How in the world can God do that? I mean, seriously, if God's good, how could he ever let someone go to hell? How can he do that? And do you know what's so ironic in the Bible is the Bible is not, not overly concerned with that question. It's just not, it's not that complicated of a question in the Bible. I, the, the, the Bible is not obsessed with that question. I, in the Bible, the answer to that question is really clear. How can God send someone to hell? Answer. Because they deserve it. That's how. Because they are sin-filled, God-belittling, grace-rejecting people who would rather have judgment than, than Jesus. That, that's what we are. Apart from Jesus, this is all of us. We are the wicked tenants and, and the Bible is not overly concerned with how would, how would God like, judge that. The Bible is saying that's what we deserve. That, that is what our fate is in our sin. That we, our sin, our wickedness, in the same way that these tenants, it slayed Jesus, our own sin did the exact same thing. That we slaughtered the Son of God. And in light of that, his judgment makes a lot of sense. I mean, just consider the moment of like somebody killing one of your sons or daughters, how you would feel about that. That's how God feels about it. In our sin, this is his judgment for it. So, so really the, the big question in the Bible is not a question of like, how would God ever send someone to hell? But the big question in the Bible is how would God ever be reconciled to sinful people? How would he ever let them into heaven? How would he ever let them back into his presence? And that's where the last part of this phrase gives us the answer. It is because of the kindness of God, that's why. Our only hope as wicked tenants deserving of God's wrath is the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God that would send his very son, beloved son, into the teeth of our rebellion, knowing that he would be slaughtered by us in our sin. Our only hope is that. God's kindness that comes to us and meets us in our revolt, in our rebellion like that. And isn't this the, the story of uh, the gospel? This is the story of the gospel. And, and you see it so clearly in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I'll just kind of land the plane with this. You see it so clearly here. This is Romans 8, or I'm sorry, Romans 5. Starting in verse 8, it says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners. In other words, we were still declaring war against God. See, I think a lot of people have this view of like the grace from God. It looks like this, that we're waving our hands, asking for grace. God, will you please give it to me? And then God comes and meets us. That's not the picture. The picture in the Bible is like we have like one finger up in the air at God in utter revolt. Our swords are drawn and we are saying, God, if you come near me in grace, you'll die. And God still, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, comes and meets us with grace. 
He comes in the middle of that. And then look at what it says in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God. Gosh, what a beautiful verse. He is saying that that God, in the midst of our rebellion, has sent his son Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live but should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. Jesus came and did all of that for us in our place, absorbing all of God's righteous judgment for our sin. Jesus came and did all of that. And you know why? So that God could look at you and pronounce over you justified. You know what the term justified means? It would be God looking at you and saying, it's just like this person has never sinned. He's looking at us and he's saying, for those who put your faith in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, God can now look at you and say, you're justified. Hey, I know your sin slaughtered my son, but now when I look at you, I see the perfection of my son over you. I know you are riddled with pornography, but when I look at you now, I see the perfection of my son over you. I'm pronouncing over you blameless, pure, perfect, I know that you lose it sometimes. I know that you do the craziest stuff, that your sin has wrecked your life in so many ways, but now God looks at us because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he can look at us and say, because of his kindness, sending his son in our place, he can look at you and say, justified. This is the grace and kindness of God. I mean, just think about it maybe this way. Consider like you opening up the paper in the morning and you seeing the story People beat, tortured, maimed, and slaughtered a man's innocent son. And in response to their maiming and torturing and killing his son, this father forgave them, adopted them into his family, and, and wrote them into his will. That's the scandalous nature of grace. That is God's kindness toward you in Jesus. And all of that finishes in verse 12. All of that finishes in verse 12. Really, the culmination of the entire story is to say, how are you going to respond to that? How will the religious leaders respond to that? See, the religious leaders, they have this option in verse 12. They can either go with Jesus or they can get judgment. They they can go with Jesus who who gladly bore their judgment, or they can just go ahead and bear their own judgment and, and live with it. They can be eternally wrecked by the judgment of God, by the wrath of God. It's judgment or Jesus. That's their option. And you see verse 12? It's one of the saddest scenes in the Bible. Rather than receiving Jesus and going for Jesus, they said no to Jesus and yes to judgment. And can I just say, that's the options that are before every one of us today. It's it's the same thing. We're the wicked tenants. God's met us with great mercy, and it leads to this moment. How are you going to respond to that? Here's your options. You can have Jesus who bore your judgment, or you can have your judgment. You can have Jesus who bore your sin, or you can, you can feel the effects of your sin for all eternity. I mean, can I just plead with you? Go with Jesus. Man, go with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. And You know, if there has never been a moment where you have put your faith in Jesus, man, what a wonderful morning for that. I I just want to make this as plain as possible for you. when all accounts are settled with God, it's going to come down to this question. Did you want Jesus or did you want to bear your own judgment? God has met you with this sort of unbelievable kindness. In the midst of your sin, God has sent his own son to live a perfect life, die on the cross for your sin, risen from the dead on the third day, to bear the judgment of your sin for you so you would never have to taste it. And so the question is, do you want Do you want to taste that judgment or do you want Jesus who gladly bore it for you to do it? And I just want to plead with you, go with Jesus. Like, and here's what that looks like. It looks like admitting that you're one of the wicked tenants, that your sin has slaughtered not only God's servants, but his very son. And it means you turning from that sin and you turning to God in faith, trusting that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is your only hope of being reconciled to him. 
And the great news of the gospel is that this morning you, can, you, don't, you don't have to live under that judgment any longer. That this morning God would rescue you from that. He would save you. He would redeem you. He would adopt you, the, the wicked tenant, into his family, write you into his will for all eternity. That's, that's open, open invitation from God for you today. I mean, if that's you and you're responding to Jesus right now, now I want to make sure you, you grab that card under your seat, check that box on responding to Jesus, and we're going to have people at the prayer table in the back of the room um, as we respond and as we sing in a moment. Now, I just want to encourage you to make your way back there. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love to kind of walk you down the first steps of that. So make, make your way back there when, as we respond. And to the Christians in the room, those who have put your faith in Jesus, you know, I love how this passage calls Jesus the cornerstone, the centerpiece of our life, that the thing in our life that everything else aligns to. So, so maybe you could just ask yourself the question this morning, are there any areas, in light of Jesus being the cornerstone, are there any areas of my life where my hills are dug in? Where I know the Spirit of God is saying, do this, go there, obey here. Where I know the Spirit of God is prompting, but I'm just saying no to that. I, I am refusing, I am operating like the wicked tents. I, God is coming to me in mercy, but I'm just refusing, I'm rejecting, I'm saying no to the way and will of God. Man, what a wonderful morning to deal with that. Man, I think it would look like repentance. Turning from that. Receiving God's forgiving grace. Asking God for transforming grace as you obey. So Father, will you meet us here today? God, we are so thankful for both your kindness and your severity that we see in this passage. And God, it's on the backdrop of of your severe judgment for sin that we this morning with hands up in the air say, Thank you for kindness. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. So God, will you come and speak and operate and do in this room right now? It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.